Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Comey Palooza today, everybody. Oh, it was it was quite a show, wasn't it? People in bars in D.C., Acting like this was the most exciting entertainment of the year so far, uh, I will say I will admit because I come into the Freedom Hut and I bring the I bring the honesty. It was a little more interesting than I thought it would be as I was watching it this morning. I was like, all right, well, this isn't a total waste of time because there were some new and important revelations for this whole Russia election leaks Comey fiasco that has been consuming the media. For months. Now let's understand. Comey, Comey's a he's a seasoned bureaucratic infighter. He he is a veteran of the turf wars of the cubicle warriors, right? He understands how this stuff goes down. And he decided to, well, I th- I think we should actually start even with an event before his testimony. He came out today and he admitted that he gave information about his uh, memos that were supposed to memorialize his meetings with the President of the United States. He gave information about them. In a sense, he leaked. I'm not saying it's classified, although we'll get into the legalities of sharing this information later on. He gave it to the New York Times to shape the political battlefield before he could take the stand. Mr. Comey took this whole thing very personally. And I do have to say, you should always be suspicious of anyone who is in government who holds himself up as as the embodiment of his or her agency, uh, the, the person who is the greatest exemplar of the mission. I think that Comey, in some ways in his mind, has conflated the Federal Bureau of Investigation with his own reputation. These are not the same thing. Uh, but... Here, he came out and said that the president lied. Uh, he said that the president defamed him and the FBI in his opening statement. Uh, he said some other things that were not particularly flattering to the president of the United States. No surprise there. And he gave his version of events. Um, first of all, he came out to tell us all just how great the how great the FBI is. Let's let's just hear that for a second. So- the FBI will be fine without me. The FBI's mission will be relentlessly pursued by its people, and that mission is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution of the United States. The FBI is honest. The FBI is strong, and the FBI is and always will be independent. Uh, first of all, the FBI is not really independent. The FBI is part of the executive branch of the federal government, and it is within the Department of Justice, which is also in the executive branch of the federal government. So that's—Comey likes to keep hammering that, 
as though the FBI is like the judiciary, a co-equal and separate branch of government. It is not, in fact. Uh, but also, I think Comey doth protest the FBI's greatness and innocence a bit too much here. Uh, it strikes me as a little self-serving to go on this a little mini monologue about how great the FBI is. We, we don't have to be told that. We, we know the FBI is incredibly capable and uh, you know, heck, I, I know and have, have worked with FBI agents in the past, and sure, uh, nobody, no one's really questioning the FBI. See, that's what Comey's whole statement here just doesn't make much sense to me from that perspective. We, we don't need to hear how great the FBI but, but why does he do it? Well, because Comey and the FBI have to be thought of as one here. Uh, in a sense, Comey takes on the entirety of that law enforcement agency on his shoulders to use as armament in his fight against the president of the United States. And look, I get it. Comey's trying to hit back. And uh, I suppose he is not just satisfied with becoming a, uh, a partner on the letterhead at a top law firm and getting paid a whole lot of money for that, as well as all sorts of speeches and his book. And you know, Comey's reputation is uh, very important to him. Or at least he makes a big issue of how important it seems to be. Um, but that's what today was. Today was was really all about Comey and his relationship with the president. Um, the most important thing from the perspective of the president of the United States and the American people from today for me is that at this point to believe that Trump colluded with Russia is to be clinging to a fantasy. It's not just a conspiracy, I should note. It's more than that. It's a fantasy, because that would mean that all of this, this nightmare for the left just comes to an abrupt end, that there is no there's no more need for liberals, for leftists, progressives, Antifa, that they, they don't have to uh, deal with this anymore. It'll all just end because it was never real to begin with. He didn't really win the election. He's not really the president. It's a fantasy for them, but it's really a mirage. It's a mirage that I think many people should see today as exactly that. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And as I have been telling you all along, uh, there will be many times when I have sharp disagreements with this administration in the months and years ahead. I'm sure of it. Uh, there are lots of things the administration has done that the president has done himself up to this point. Uh, that I find unwise, uh, that I disagree with. Not huge issues, but there are things, certainly, that I could point to, and I don't want to bore you with them right now, but they're there. I have never believed for one second that Donald Trump thought that it would be a good idea, nor did I think that he would be willing, despite all the ethical concerns that so many Democrats and the media have about him, to sell out his country to win the election. And also... Perhaps even more importantly, I've never understood how that process would have even come together, how that would have even been a conspiracy that was really possible. And because when you play this out, it's so obviously improbable to the point of impossible, uh, then we're just doing what exactly? All, this media coverage of this for so long has been about what? But you see now there's the transition from... Trump-Russia collusion to Trump obstruction and Flynn lying under oath. That's They're going to try to get the Republicans now on process crimes. 
That is their uh, process crimes where there's interpretation, where there's context, where they can find something to latch their teeth onto. Because the whole Trump is a traitor thing, if you're, if you're still clinging to that, I, I don't know what to tell you. If you think that some member of Trump's extended, not inner, but extended circle was talking to some shady Russians that he shouldn't have at some point, and maybe that set off some alarms for people that pay attention to those kinds of things in our own government, and they were watching it a little bit, sure, it seems as though Trump is willing to believe that might have even happened, uh, and, and he wouldn't have known about it. That's possible. He's not, you know, he's not responsible for everything that happens in his government, right? I mean, I know you could say the, pardon me for using the phrase, the buck stops with Trump, because as we know, the buck never stops. But uh, Trump is not responsible for the activities and every conversation of every person that was associated with his campaign. But the treason thing should just be off the table. If you're being honest about where the facts are now. Uh, okay, then we, then we get into obstruction and, and some other stuff here. Um, but before I, uh, and we will talk about those legalities with our friend Andy McCarthy so that we have somebody who's a seasoned career federal prosecutor and not just Buck who reads a lot and, and knows as much about the law as he can without having ever gone to law school. Um, but let's get into uh, some other very interesting revelations from today. For example... Uh, Comey saying that Loretta Lynch. Now, remember, we didn't find out about this conversation with Trump that made Comey so uncomfortable where he asked for uh, loyalty. That's the allegation which Trump disputes, by the way, via his lawyer. Uh, In fact, here, here's the president's lawyer disputing that allegation. Let's give you that audio. The president likewise never pressured Mr. Comey. The president also never told Mr. Comey, quote, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty, close quote. He never said it in form, and he never said it in substance. Of course, the office of the president is entitled to expect loyalty from those who are serving the administration. And from before this president, And from before this president took office to this day, it is overwhelmingly clear that there have been and continue to be those in government who are actively attempting to undermine this administration with selective and illegal leaks of classified information and privileged communications. Mr. Comey has now admitted that he is one of these leakers. Today, Mr. Comey admitted that he unilaterally and surreptitiously made unauthorized disclosures to the press of privileged communications with the president. Not sure where that's going to go legally. That's obviously Trump's lawyer, right? So you're not going to get more pro-Trump than the guy who's hired to represent the president of the United States in this matter personally. Uh, but I wanted to play that for you, and uh, that's that's important to be sure about the loyalty issue. But I, that's that's not going anywhere, everybody. I mean, if you hate Trump, you're going to say, "Oh, he was demanding, he was demanding loyalty." If you think that Trump is fine, you like Trump, or you're just trying to be honest with what the situation presented uh, was, I think you figure that he was just, you know, he was talking to him. The way Trump talks to people, we're all familiar with the way Trump talks, and we get it. 
Trump's kind of got his own way of doing things. But this was really interesting to me. Uh, Loretta Lynch was the attorney general during an election year appointed by Barack Obama, who's a Democrat, the Democrat nominee for the presidency is under a very real criminal investigation for her mishandling of classified information, which, let's just be clear, she did mishandle. They just said she did not mean to. Well, I am sympathetic to that argument, and I think that that's important, uh, because you shouldn't throw people in prison for mishandling classified or even prosecute them for mishandling classified that they didn't know was classified or that— but over a hundred times, we're, that's we're supposed to believe she just didn't know, huh? Never crossed her mind, never read those emails, didn't see it, never thought about it. Oh, that would fall under gross negligence, which was also part of the statute. Uh, you know, one or two times is a mistake. A hundred times is gross negligence. They let her off. Okay. But as all, of, as all of that is going on, and you have the presidency and all the jobs, by the way, that come with it, all the very powerful people who were expecting everything from cabinet positions to ambassadorships, all those Democrats who were measuring the curtains in their future office inside of Washington, D.C., or wherever their government agency or bureaucracy was going to be uh, setting them up. And that's all riding on whether Hillary can win. And we found out that Loretta Lynch made a very interesting request of the FBI director. I want to know, was she going to authorize us to confirm we had an investigation? And she said, yes, but don't call it that. Call it a matter. And I said, why would I do that? And she said, just call it a matter. And again, you look back in hindsight, you think, should I have resisted harder? I just said, all right, isn't worth, this isn't a hill worth dying on. And so I just said, okay, the press is going to completely ignore it. And that's what happened when I said, we have opened a matter they all reported the FBI has an investigation open. Uh, and so that concerned me because that language tracked the way the campaign was talking about the FBI's work, and that, that's concerning. The FBI director took a direct order and executed that direct order to mislead the public about a criminal investigation of the Democrat nominee for the presidency in a way that was dishonest blatantly false. It was an investigation. We all knew it was an investigation, but the optics matter. So to try and tip the optic, to try and tip perception more towards Hillary, the attorney general gave Comey an order that was preposterous, ridiculous, and he followed through on it. And of course says, well, the, the press ignored us. Okay. Says you. But where were all these ethics? Where was Comey, America's last great Boy Scout? Where, where was that when the attorney general is telling you to call an investigation something other than an investigation in an official statement? Well, I don't know. Crickets on that one. We've got a lot more. Stay with me. I want to give Senator Marco Rubio some credit for asking among the single most incisive and important questions of the entire Comey extravaganza today. Let's hear it. You know, this investigation is full of leaks left and right. I mean, we've learned more from the newspapers sometimes than we do from our open hearings, for sure. Um, 
you ever wonder why, of all the things in this investigation, the only thing that's never been leaked is the fact that the president was not personally under investigation, despite the fact that both Democrats and Republicans and the leadership of Congress knew that and have known that for weeks? I don't know. I find matters that are briefed to the Gang of Eight uh, are pretty tightly held in my tightly held in my okay so when it comes to the doj's reputation comey was willing to take the extreme and very questionable measure of holding that press conference standing up in front of the american people and really taking the job of the attorney general into his hands to announce no charges right but that was because that was because the fbi you know the, the fbi's reputation was at stake says Comey. But with the president's reputation at stake, he chose to be silent. When the president of the United States is besieged with insinuations from the media and sometimes outright accusations in the media that he is a traitor, the FBI director will tell and did tell the president at least three times, you are not under investigation, but chose not to make that public. That, that never would go public. Another point here that is tied to this, Comey was willing to say that uh, he's willing to say that there is no investigation of the president of the United States for collusion with Russia, but is not willing to say whether he believed that collusion happened. He said that would have to be or believed there was any evidence of collusion that would have to be handled in a in a different setting, he says. That to me, look, I, I don't know. I don't have access to the different setting. But that struck me as uh, as a little too clever. And I think Comey does a lot of that too clever stuff. Um, he's writing all these memos down. When asked why, by the way, here's what he had to say. Why are you writing these memos, uh, former FBI Director Comey? Or just, how about Jim? A combination of things. I think the circumstances, the subject matter, and the person I was interacting with. Circumstances first, I was alone with the President of the United States, or the President-elect, soon to be President. The subject matter, I was talking about matters that touch on the FBI's core responsibility and that relate to the President, President-elect personally. And then the nature of the person. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting, and so I thought it really important to document. That combination of things I'd never experienced before, but it led me to believe I got to write it down, and I got to write it down in a very detailed way. And uh, just in case you're wondering what he thinks about the president, this is what he said, uh, opening statements. And although the law required no reason at all to fire an FBI director, the administration then chose to defame me and, more importantly, the FBI by saying that the organization was in disarray, that it was poorly led that the workforce had lost confidence in its leader. Those were lies, plain and simple. Okay, so clearly this guy doesn't like Trump, says he's a liar, says he's defaming the FBI, and I just sit here thinking to myself, Comey, you're not the FBI. And I I don't think that this whole I'm just so holy and pure routine is fooling as many people as you think it does. That's my takeaway. We'll be right back with more.
The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. All right, everybody. We had a lot of testimony today, sworn testimony. The former FBI director laying down his side of this whole story. And people are talking about obstruction of justice, criminal charges, all kinds of stuff being thrown around by the media. What's true and what's not to help us wade through the legal realities of all this? We're joined by, of course, Andy McCarthy, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Read all of his stuff at nationalreview.com. Andy, great to have you back. Well, great to be here. All right. Um, I, I've seen that the, the consensus from most people that I think are fair-minded about this is that there was some good stuff for Trump, some not-so-good stuff for Trump today. But on the legal side of it, what are you seeing? What's your takeaway as a former prosecutor? I thought that as far as the legal side of it was, Trump had a very good day. Uh, to my mind, uh, he's got a little bit of an atmospheric problem at the end on obstruction of justice. But for the most part, the, the case that there was an obstruction of justice, I think, is, has been uh, seriously undermined. There's no collusion between the Trump campaign and, and the uh, Putin regime. Go and far away. That was the uh, that was the main thing that uh, uh, was was the reason for all this concern over Russia. That seems to be an afterthought at this point. Um, so on the on the legal front, I thought Trump did fine. I think what I'd be concerned about from his perspective is um, the you know Comey is a was a fabulous trial lawyer, uh, particularly as a prosecutor. And what prosecutors are really good at the good ones is, you know, lay, telling the story, painting the picture, the narrative, the mood music. And he was not uh, very flattering to President Trump in doing that. So, uh, so you think there's pol- there are political consequences maybe for Trump as a result of the Comey testimony, yeah. but not necessarily legal. Uh, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, on the obstruction issue, people keep saying, I-, I hope you can see your way clear. And, and to me, I, at some level, there there has to be, I mean, you, look, you were a prosecutor for decades, Andy. I'm assuming that if somebody walks up to somebody on the street for like a controlled buy for drugs, and the guy's like, you know, do you want some drugs? And the guy says, hey, wish I could help you, but sorry, and walks past them. You don't throw that guy in cuffs, right? I mean, you know, right. I, I wish I could help you. is like a figure of speech. He's not saying, yeah, I wish I could buy your drugs. He's walking past him. Yeah, well, I yeah, I think that's exactly right. But even before you get to that, and this is the thing that's driven me most crazy about this book, when you listen to the commentary about obstruction, what they usually end up saying is that, you know, the statute says interference with the administration of law or in- interference with justice. That's They leave out the most important word in the statute, which is corruptly. So – a prosecutor, that's not an idle word. There are no idle words in, in criminal statutes. It's a part of the state of mind that a prosecutor has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to, to establish obstruction of justice. And it means not just that you acted intentionally, but that you have to have acted um, with an understanding that what you were doing was wrong. And, you know, what that usually means is a guy bribes 
someone, a public official who then leans on the police to, to drop a case or the public official is in cahoots with the suspect and leans on the police because he doesn't want the suspect to drop a dime on him. You know, those are pretty obvious uh, instances of obstruction. Um, when a prosecutor exercises prosecutorial discretion, that's not obstruction, even though it can halt an investigation. And in fact, throughout the United States, in prosecutors' offices and FBI offices, every single day, investigations are halted, which have viable crimes in them, but people decide that the equities uh, weigh in the direction of not bringing the case. The president has no less authority to do that, obviously, than his subordinates do. I thought and the Wall Street I, Journal made I, an interesting point to this uh, end, Andy, about Comey keeps saying an independent, you know, the independent FBI. Yeah, but still a part of the executive branch. It's, a, it's not its right. own branch of government. No, I think Jim has a very outsized idea of the independence of law enforcement. And look, as you've pointed out, I was a prosecutor for a long time. I believe in the independence of law enforcement, but it's like every other uh, value that we have. It's not an absolute. And in our system, our constitutional system is based on the idea that we get good performance out of the government by making it accountable to a boss who is accountable to the voters. So – Yes, we want there to be independent law enforcement in the sense that the public needs to know that the day-to-day enforcement of the laws is based on what the laws say, not political considerations. But that doesn't mean the Justice Department and the FBI are a separate branch of government. They are subordinate to the president. They don't have independent authority. In fact, under the Constitution, the only official in the executive branch who has power is the president. Everybody else exercises the president's power as a delegate, which is why the president can dismiss them at his pleasure. Prosecutors and agents, when they exercise prosecutorial discretion, they are exercising the president's power. So the thought that the, they can exercise it and the president can't is patently absurd. Uh, and also one thing that came out – a couple of other things that came out today that I don't think necessarily have any – Legal ramifications, though I'm seeing some people, per, you know, maybe in good faith or maybe just to get attention, saying that they think that there could be uh, some some charges leveled as a result of this. One of them had to do with the Comey uh, admission, which was, I thought, the most interesting single moment of the entire exchange today, really, that he, he did authorize somebody on his behalf to tell The New York Times the content of memos that he had written up of conversations he had had with the president that to me strikes me as legal because he's in a sense the classifying authority of those documents the moments that moment that he writes them so I, I don't I don't really see a case there but that strikes me as uh, that smells funky to me Andy I, I, I that that doesn't seem right I mean, he knows he's going to testify openly anyway or he could testify openly why not just come out on the record why use a surrogate and try and create a narrative before you go in front of the public yeah especially when. You say your objective, as he said, his objective was to, to force the appointment of a special prosecutor. I mean, he could have had a press conference and said, I think we need a special prosecutor. Yeah. Uh, I think to do, it by, to do it by leaking under circumstances where he himself is one of the biggest critics of leaking uh, in the government, and rightly so, by the way, um, is, is, is questionable judgment uh, on his part. And I think, look, I, I hope nothing – Nothing yeah, illegal about it, though, in your judgment, though, right? I mean, he's just well, – I, I or don't you don't know. know. For example, did, well, Diddy, they're his, um, they're his memos, but they're government property more than likely. They're government records. They're 
you know, records of his. He's certainly holding them up as government records, Andy. Yeah. So the question is, did did the FBI have a copy of them? You know, did he take them when he left? And, uh, you know, did he give them to the media before the FBI had? I hope he didn't. I hope he, you know, I hope it's fine. And the FBI had them on file and he had a copy and he decided he's no longer in the government. And he decided he's going to fight fire with fire with somebody who was trying to um, destroy his reputation. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a pretty story, but I, I think it'd be an excusable one. Um, but we'll just have to see. I, I, I think th- there is going to be some serious looking into this, though. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was in the NYPD, having been at the CIA before that, uh, and, and we, we weren't dealing with the federal statutes about, about classified, uh, but they told me, they're like, well, just so you understand, or, you know, when I was learning about the different uh, levels of, of law enforcement uh, secrecy and expectations, they have uh, what was, uh, they have um, uh, abuse of position, official misuse of position. There were different criminal uh, statutes that could apply for basically, act, you know, doing your job incredibly poorly and recklessly in such a way that you might have, you know, cause problems. So even when the when right. the criminal uh, federal classified statutes don't necessarily apply, you can still get yourself into trouble working for the government if you do some do something really official misconduct. I'm sorry, was the word I was trying to right. find official right. misconduct. And they're like, you, you can actually go to jail for that. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I, I always think fuck, the simplest way of, of thinking about this is how would Director Comey feel about an FBI agent who did what he did? Would he be okay with that? You know that you you make uh, you, you make memoranda to yourself of official FBI business uh, on FBI equipment, and then you leak it to the media. I, I just wonder what. For what seems like a very personal it. purpose, right? I mean, by the way, we're speaking to Andy McCarthy, everybody, a former U.S. attorney and uh, contributing editor at National Review. But a- Andy, this does seem very personal. This seems like Comey wanted to punch back. Yeah, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I mean, I understand that impulse, too, but a lot of people in a lot of situations would like to like to punch back, I think, at what's going on within the government. Yeah. But, there, are, you know, no. <laughs> as you know, Andy, right. better, than, better these, than most, there are rules. That's, that's why these jobs are very hard, because there's a lot of times you say, you know, I could easily get around the rules here, and I have a good reason for doing it. Um, and <laughs> usually that's the reason the rules are there in the first place, right? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, look, I—, I I think that what the president was trying to do to Comey was a very bad thing, um, and he had every reason that he wanted to fight back. But yeah, he shouldn't you know, have, he he shouldn't have skewered of, Comey with the tweets, right? I mean, I, and, and I I agree with that sentiment. That wasn't that wasn't he, he proper. Could've, he could have fought him. He could have fought him through the front door. There's no reason to do it this way. Yeah. Um, now, Andy, the another thing that came up that I that really got my attention for a second was the admission that Loretta Lynch told Comey not to publicly refer to what was clearly an investigation as an investigation. Now, I think this also falls in the category of, okay, maybe not obstruction, but that is obvious politicization. I mean, if there was a DOJ, you know, ombudsman or something, I would think that person would have to come in and say, look, you can't change what an investigation is because it sounds bad. Yeah, but, you know, Buck, I think you're hitting on exactly what it is that motivates Comey and and what has uh, caused a lot of what we've seen, which is that, you know, Lynch and Obama could have tanked the case on on Hillary Clinton by just either pardoning her or just saying we're not going to investigate this and announcing that publicly. Uh, 
They didn't want to do that because they didn't want to take the political heat for it. They wanted to set up a situation where it looked like the FBI was clearing her. So they're sort of exploiting the prestige of the FBI um, rather than taking the political heat for their own decisions. And I think they, they, they kind of see Trump as doing uh, the same thing here. And I think that's what that's what motivated Comey really more than virtually anything else, the fact that the FBI's reputation was being exploited by these political people for political purposes. Andy McCarthy is a contributing editor for National Review. Check out nationalreview.com to read. Again, pressure is not obstruction. Uh, and why was Flynn grilled by the FBI? Andy, thank you so much for joining, man. Great to have you as always. Thanks, Buck. under siege. You understand that. But we will come out bigger and better and stronger than ever. You watch. You fought hard for me, and now I'm fighting hard for all of you. We know that the truth will prevail, that God's glorious wisdom will shine through, and that the good and decent people of this country will get the change they voted for and that they so richly deserve. Trump seeming uh, reasonably optimistic there. They, they are under siege. Um, I think today was, for most of the uh, anti-Trump media, a letdown. Uh, I think that they didn't get as much out of this as they wanted. I think, I think that they've been pushing it too far and too hard uh, with regard to Russia collusion. And I also think that Comey went a little, a little uh, far in all this stuff today. I was, you know, speaking of... And I, I read these pieces about how Comey is so beloved within the FBI. And, I mean, I can just tell you, you know, when you work for a really big federal agency, I, I don't know how much contact you really have with the guy at the very, very, very top. But uh, I, I find the—I don't know. I mean, maybe we could—I uh, I wish I could get somebody inside the FBI to, who I trusted uh, to speak about this issue. But, you know, you don't speak to people generally inside these places. It's just, you know, they, they don't want to talk for obvious reasons. Um, but anyway, uh, Comey on, on the sanctimony scale, I think, I think he took the dial to an 11 here because he was asked, why didn't you, uh, president Trump was, uh, you know, why didn't you push back harder when president Trump met with you? And this, this is what Comey full of sanctimony said. But why didn't you stop and say, Mr. President, this is wrong. I cannot discuss this with you. It's a great question. Maybe if I were stronger, I would have. I was so stunned by the conversation that I just took it in. And the only thing I could think to say, because I was playing in my mind, because I was remember every word he said, I was playing in my mind, what should my response be? And that's why I very carefully chose the words. And look, I, I've seen the tweet about tapes. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. I, I remember saying, I agree he's a good guy as a way of saying I'm not agreeing with what you just asked me to do. Again, maybe other people would be stronger in that circumstance, but that, that was, uh, that's how I conducted myself. I, I hope I'll never have another opportunity. Maybe if I did it again, I would do it better. This is a little bit like when somebody gets asked in a job interview, you know, what are your weaknesses? And the response is, 
Well, Bob, I just like to share the credit too much, and I take too much responsibility on my own shoulders. I mean, I'm such a team player that the team feels left out because I want to do all their work for them, and I'm just too hard on myself. Those are my deep flaws, my failures. You know, Kobe's like, if I were only stronger, if I only could have done more. It's like, dude, we, we get it, okay? You're you're Amer- America's top cop, or formerly, whatever. Um, by the way, uh, another just random part of this whole hearing that I thought was uh, didn't get much attention, that, but it stuck out in my mind, is a Senator Harris, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, made a, an analogy and this is what this is what she said about Comey and the whole honest loyalty thing and also oh, no, I'm sorry no this was about see your way clear of Flynn uh, here's what the senator said experience of prosecuting uh, cases uh, when a robber held a gun to somebody's head and and said I hope you will give me your wallet the word hope was not the most operative word at that moment but I'll, you don't have to respond to that point Okay, um, I would like to know what the case is. And she's an experienced prosecutor, right, and a senator. What is the case where the robber holds up the gun and says, I hope you will give me your wallet? Pretty sure they usually demand the wallet, right? And also that's a very specific context because the presence of a firearm there would be an immediate, not even implied threat. So if, a ro- if somebody walked up to somebody and said, I hope you'll give me your wallet, and there's no threat of violence there, and then they just walk past them, I, I, I don't believe that is a crime, in fact. Uh, n- not a particularly skilled prosecutor, it would seem to me, but nonetheless, uh, U.S. senator now. Oh, but I digress. Uh, look, we, I want to get into a little bit of the, pol- of the politics of this and also how we move forward from it or how the administration will move forward from it. Um, I, I know it's, it's Comey Day here. Uh, and so that's what's going to be going on for a little bit. But I will talk to you later on in the show about an update on uh, that crazy college up in Washington. I have their course curriculum to talk to you about. Uh, I also want to share with you another one of these videos that somebody wishes that they probably shouldn't or hadn't made about uh, getting into a fight with someone in the service industry and um, a lot more. We've got more. Stay with me. online too you can hang out with team buck anytime plus get buck's latest news and analysis go to bucksexton.com that's bucksexton.com the buck is back all right everybody we've talked about the legality of the comey hearing today whether there'll be possible charges or not let's get into the politics of all this what does it mean for the administration how do they do from a purely partisan washington dc beltway insider uh, perspective. Well, to give us th- that sense of things, we're joined by Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and a Fox News contributor. His latest is Comey's testimony poised to be defining moment of Trump's presidency. Michael, got to ask you, was it a defining moment for the presidency? Well, look, I, I think that's certainly what Comey was hoping for. That's what the Democrats were hoping for. But I think at the end of the day, uh, Trump survives. And by surviving, he is stronger because the, the attempt to knock him off, which is really what Comey is all about now, there's no question about that. I think it failed today. Now, look, uh, Robert Mueller is still out there, the special counsel. 
But when you look at the buildup to this day and you look at what Democrats were hoping, which is essentially this was a big step toward impeachment, I don't think you saw anything there today that said, oh, yes, impeachment is on track. Uh, in fact, what you saw was that Comey confirms that he told Trump three times that he was not under personal investigation in the Russian collusion case. So that's a very big deal. Uh, what does it leave? It leaves obstruction of justice, perhaps. Okay, what did we see there today about obstruction of justice? I mean, people like Alan Dershowitz will tell you nothing, that uh, the president is free to fire the FBI director. Uh, and so that I, I think that this is now somewhat of a shifted environment, Buck. I think that now Trump is back to politics as usual, and that's still not an easy road for him. He's still got a lot of resistance within the Republican uh, members of Congress. And I think if he's really going to be a successful president, he's got to get some big legislation through. He's got to get the economy humming. He's got to deliver the jobs, jobs, jobs. Otherwise, I think this kind of event today and the, and the continuing agitation of Democrats will take a toll on this presidency, and he may survive, but it will not be successful unless he can get some big things done. I do think that the opposition media has been preparing for this shift, at least some of them uh, perhaps hedging their bets for a little while, where the, the drumbeat uh, has gone from we're going to prove that Trump is some kind of Kremlin double agent to Flynn or Trump, someone's going to get jammed up on a cover-up of no crime, right? That either the obstruction charge against right. Trump or lying to FBI agents for Flynn will now become what we're hearing a lot about. But that doesn't have, it's, it would seem to me, that the same power to completely bog down the Trump administration and divert its entire agenda as nightly news reports about how Trump is, you know, basically whispering in Russian on a secure phone to his handler somewhere in Moscow. <laughs> yeah, look, and I think people should remember, too, and this is part of what informs my thinking. Uh, impeachment is a political decision. Yes, of course, there's a legal angle to it. But fundamentally, the House is the grand jury deciding whether to indict, and the Senate is the trial jury deciding whether to convict. They're all politicians. I mean, this is not a legal proceeding so much as it is a political one. And, and one of the reasons the founders did it this way is because they didn't want it to be frequently used. They saw it as an extreme reaction, not extreme as in the sense of overreacting, but as, as not necessary except in extreme cases of high crimes and misdemeanors, which they left uh, undefined. So I think the, the idea of going through an actual impeachment process, as much as the left fantasizes about it, would be very, very bad for the country, very divisive for the country. And it rarely happens because you need 67 votes in the Senate. You need this supermajority, this two-thirds majority. And that means bipartisanship. And so I think the country, uh, at least the, the left, needs to just accept the fact that Trump is president. Sure, you don't have to like him. You don't have to agree with him. But this idea of tearing down the government because you don't like the results of the election, I think that is what is, is suffered a big blow today. 
And I hope the left will accept it as a fact and not look for another another angle through the same door. We're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor about what happened today with the Comey testimony. Uh, Michael, you've been in this game for a while. If the Democrats were to take the House, let's say, in the midterms, based on just what we already know about the conversation with Comey, do you think they would push for impeachment? I mean, I know you're saying you're hoping they'll walk back from it, but they're in the minority now. If they actually had uh, the House, do you think they'd go ahead with it if they if based on what we know so far about Trump's actions? Well, look, uh, they might well do that, uh, in which case it would then become, I think, a political circus and impeachment would become a much more common tool. And I think that would that would be to the uh, great disadvantage to the country as a whole. Look, I, I mean, I I would not defend Donald Trump if I thought he did an impeachable thing, but I didn't see it today. And I think if you start to just mix your impeachment with your politics, if if impeachment becomes your reaction to the ballot box, then I think we're going down a very different road. And so I thought today's hearing was pretty respectful and I think sober, and I thought it was fair. I thought Mark Warner obviously is itching for something that wasn't there, the Virginia Democrat. But I thought, by and large, the senators asked reasonable questions. I thought Comey, uh, you know, in his J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover uh, impersonation, I mean, even talked about not wanting to do a J. Edgar Hoover thing of having something on the president. But, in fact, that's what he did. And I think a lot of that came out, that that. Comey's own conduct was suspect, that some of his that his that his behavior in the sense of all he doesn't tell anybody about his concerns about Trump until he's fired. And then he helps to leak them. He, he actually participates in a leak. Yeah, my, my impression of Comey, and I, I'm wondering what your reaction is to this, is that he pretends that it's all about the FBI. But I think it's all about him running the FBI. I think he liked being FBI director a little too much. Yeah, look, I, I I agree. I mean, I think that I think that Comey somewhere along the line began to see himself as too big to be fired, and I believe that that was part of his mistake. That he did not react to either Loretta Lynch's uh, violations as he saw them, or or to President Trump's as he saw them until he was fired, and then he unloads on everybody. I mean, that does not speak well of him at all. That does not speak. And, and several senators called him on that. Why didn't you if you felt so strongly? Because I think th- that's the great paradox here. If these things were so horrible and Comey felt so strongly about them, why did he not say anything until he was fired? And if, if he didn't think they were important enough to talk about while he was still in office, are they really impeachable offenses? The head of the FBI, a man who knows prosecutions in and out, and he doesn't call them to anyone's attention or blow the whistle or even have a conversation with the president about it. He says something to uh, Sessions at one point, but doesn't. But it's but it's not even in the sense of uh, it was improper. It was just that you should have been in the meeting too. So it's a very strange case to throw up as you know, count number one in an impeachment proceedings. And I just think if we begin to use impeachment instead of the ballot box, uh, we're really going down a third world uh, road. What happens next with the Trump agenda? Where, where should they go next week? You, you can tell me where you think they're going to go and or where, where they should go. But what happens well, now? 
Well, I'll tell you, in, in my column tomorrow, Buck, one of the things I, I spotlight, uh, two things, actually. I, I think President Trump is coming to understand that there's only so much he can do with executive orders and even going abroad where the president is pretty much unfettered. And, and I like the fact that he, yesterday and this week, while all this was going on, he went to Ohio on Wednesday to talk about infrastructure. And today, he did not tweet during the uh, hearing, as far as I know. He waited for his lawyer to come out afterwards. And I, I think all of these things speak to me, that he recognizes he's got to get the Republicans in Congress side, that unless he can get Congress to pass the big things, he's not going to be a successful president. And how does he do that? He has to get a larger public base because right now the members of Congress, they're wary of him, but they're not afraid of him. He's not popular enough to scare them. He's got to get more popular. He's got to work with them. They have to see their own interest in his agenda. And I think if he can do that, he will be successful, and that, that I think, will help him should this uh, this case against him continued to gather steam. America, that's where it comes back to politics. America will not convict a popular president. And to be popular, you have to be successful. And I think that is where he needs to put his attention. Michael Goodwin is New York Post columnist. Check out NewYorkPost.com for his column tomorrow. He's also Fox News contributor. Michael, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. I'm going to give you a content warning. Uh, we're going to talk about something that's tough to even hear about, but it is uh, worth some discussion, and it is in the news right now. Um, Michigan has just passed a law, the Michigan State Legislature, making it a crime uh, punishable by 15 years in prison to engage in or assist in the process of what is known as uh, FGM, female genital mutilation, also known as female circumcision, although FGM is a more broadly used and more accurate term for uh, this completely barbaric and horrific practice. Now, this is not getting a lot of media attention, despite the fact that uh, it involves young girls, uh, it involves the abuse of those girls by adults entrusted with their protection uh, through a procedure with FGM that can have lifelong uh, ramifications of pain, uh, all kinds of continuous infections, uh, and can even result in, in death in the immediate term because of infection, and is specifically intended to subjugate women to, as they grow, as they come of age, as they grow older, uh, to er eradicate uh, sexual pleasure. Uh, that's a way of subjugating women. It is commonplace, uh, shockingly commonplace, in a number of uh, Muslim-majority uh, African countries. Uh, it is commonplace, in fact, in, well, it, 200 million girls, according to the World Health Organization, uh, who are alive today have been cut. Um, and 
30 countries across Africa, the Middle East, and Asia have FGM practiced in some numbers. It is most common in parts of Africa and in some countries of the Middle East. Um, and those countries have migrants who come to the West, who come to Europe and America, and have, in some cases, tried to bring this practice along with them. There is a doctor and his wife in uh, Michigan right now who are facing trial, and they are claiming that this is a religious right. They are claiming a religious uh, exception to this. Um, and for those who are wondering what the reality of the procedure is, uh, there is a piece up on Fox now about a Virginia imam. It really, th this isn't a Fox piece. It'd be more accurate to say Fox picked up what the Middle East Research Media Institute, uh, Memory, which is an excellent organization that just translates what's going on in predominantly Arabic uh, media and, and clips online, but as well as some others, uh, so that we can know what's being said. And here is what is said. Here was what is said by a, an imam. Uh, in Falls Church, Virginia, and he posted this on YouTube. This is the imam speaking about the practice of female genital mutilation. We thought it important to publish this sermon on the topic of FGM because it has been in the news recently. It is a sunnah, which means a traditional Islamic practice, uh, for the boys and an honorable thing to do if needed for the girls. This is something that a Muslim gynecologist can tell you if you need or not, Imam El-Sayed says in the video. He went on to say that uh, they are to cut only the tip of the sensitive part in the girl so that she is not hypersexually active. That is the purpose. Um, it causes serious harm in the sexual life of the child when she grows up, and this is why the West thinks of it as sexual mutilation if that lady or surgeon cuts more. Um, but uh, he is saying here that hypersexuality, uh, he said that in, in societies that prohibit the practice, quote, hypersexuality takes over and a woman is not satisfied with one person or two or three. Uh, that is, God forbid, now happening in Muslim societies where they prohibit circumcision. So he's saying that unless you perform this dangerous, completely Medically unnecessary, by the way. Go on the World Health Organization website. No, no real scientist, no person who researched this or knows anything about it will tell you this is anything other than dangerous and barbaric and meant to demean and subjugate women. Um, and he's this imam is telling you what what others and there are. I know there are apologists out there for this practice. There are apologists in this country that say, well, men are men go through a, a similar procedure, and that is nonsense. That is not true. Uh, men do not go through a procedure that is medically dangerous, that involves lifelong pain, and that is meant to subjugate them because they cannot enjoy sexual pleasure afterwards. That is the purpose of why they do this to uh, young Muslim girls, little girls. Uh, and as I said, 200 million people. By the way, why have you not heard that before? Oh, well, could it be because it doesn't look particularly good for one faith tradition that it is overwhelmingly where this is practiced. I know this is where some smug scholar would come up and say, well, Buck, in some parts of uh, Eritrea, they still do this, and not necessarily in Muslim areas. It is overwhelmingly practiced in Muslim-majority countries and in Muslim, uh, Muslim communities. 
and 200 million women have gone through this. Ayan Hirsi Ali wrote about it in her book, Infidel. It was done to her. If you want to understand what this is, read her book. She describes it in detail. It is very difficult reading. But this is happening here now. A federal prosecutor said that the two people that are currently charged should be held, should not go out on bail. This was in Detroit. This is in Michigan, my friends. This is in the United States of America. They should be held because it is believed that they may have performed the practice on up to a hundred girls. This is just the case that we know about. And this is why, of course, Michigan today, Michigan today passed a law to make this a serious felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. So this is happening right now. And I should note, there are those who are taking this up as a religious freedom issue. They are defending this. They are defending a barbaric practice that is affiliated with Islam. It is not necessarily a part of Islam, but it is from within the Islamic tradition, once again, having to parse and make all of these distinctions because they don't want to upset people. But there are those who are, are openly defending this in our own society, in our own country. And as the World Health Organization, not some right-wing website notes, this has now spread from within the communities where it is uh, commonplace into Europe and into America through uh, Muslim immigration. But we don't know what the extent of it is because, of course, no one is supposed to talk about it. It happens within families. It is kept quiet. It would be shameful for the woman who has been violated in this way, in this traditionalist, uh, Islamist point of view, for her to speak out about the atrocity that's been committed against her, right? So it's just kept quiet. It's kept under wraps. But I just wonder, as I'm, as I'm sitting here, how many of you, I know we've focused so much on Comey today, how many of you know that there's a case where up to 100 girls had uh, were victims of FGM in Michigan, here in the United States, that there's an imam in Virginia who's saying, yeah, it's to make sure that women don't have too much fun when they have sex, and that this is being held up as a religious freedom case by some, and that Detroit has to pass a law to stop people from doing this here in America today. I just think that should probably get a, a little bit more attention, don't you? Maybe just a bit. Maybe just a little more attention. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. We shouldn't think that the debates over uh, free speech are, are limited to this country. Uh, in fact, uh, our uh, brethren, uh, our brothers and sisters uh, from the land down under, and Australia, they have their own fights over this. Literally, their own fights over this. I don't know how many of you uh, caught this earlier today. We, we will put the clip up on um, bucksexton.com so you can check it out there. Um, so we will uh, we'll have it. We'll have up the video for you because you really need to see the video of this. Uh, at least I think so. Um, but the uh, the video of it is of a couple of people who are part of the uh, Antifa. And they are attacking, uh, they are attacking columnist Andrew 
Bolt. And here is uh, how that went for it. And let's play the audio, please. So they're they were yelling. There's some some dishes thrown around. There's some problems. You had two Antifa thugs um, who came out and who uh, attacked this guy, and they videotaped it themselves. I should note uh, because they were trying to make a point about how this guy, who's a conservative and writes stuff about about Trump. Um, they want to shut him down. He's a commentator for Sky News and a columnist for the Herald Sun. This was in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, so he was attacked. They, they they sprayed him with liquid that contained some dye and glitter and, and tried to punch him and tried to pummel this guy on video, which is appalling on so many levels, right? It's two on one. It's an ambush. This guy's done nothing wrong. He's just walking down the street. I mean, he's 57, uh, the whole thing. It's just, and I know a lot of you guys listening are 57 are like, I would have annihilated these punks. And I know you would have, but this guy's a columnist that he's 57, you know? So it's not like a, he's not like a retired Marine. So I'm just saying, but Hey, he put up quite a fight. Uh, he, he, he did a, I was, I was proud of this guy in this, uh, in this scuffle. You know, it, it's a very, until you've, you know, the, the very famous Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan or everyone has a strategy or whatever. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Uh, until you've been punched in the face, you, you can't know what it's like to have that moment of, where, where it, it kind of hits you all of a sudden, <laughs> kind of hits you, where you have that jolt of adrenaline and, oh my gosh, I've just been hit or I've just been attacked or someone's just, you know, pushed me. Um. But instead, and people who are, it has nothing to do with anything other than just their whether they're able to react or not, because your body can kind of freeze up for a second. But uh, you, your fight or flight response kicks in, and this guy went fight. I mean, he throws he throws down. He gets in some good shots. Uh, unfortunately, they landed some shots on him too. But he he got right in there, and he was definitely more than they bargained for. Uh, Andrew Bolt down in Australia, down in Melbourne. This is, by the way, in broad daylight, and it was right outside of a uh, an Italian restaurant where Bolt was scheduled, according to National Review here, to help launch The Art of the Impossible, a blog history of the election of Donald J. Trump as president, uh, a new book by university professor Stephen Cates. Okay, so uh, Bolt delivered his speech, by the way, after this whole assault happened this videotaped assault happened and uh, he's going to auction off the suit that was ruined in the attack he's going to give any proceeds from the ruined suit to very special kids which is a local children's hospice charity so this guy's kicking butt and trying to help out help out kids a kids charity nearby i mean this guy's awesome i mean I, i gotta follow him on twitter and start reading his columns and i mean this guy uh, has has made a fan out of me just with this one whole situation here, um, and he wrote why I why I punched and I and why I don't want your sympathy in the Herald Sun. He wrote apologies for making a deal about punching a protester, but there's a reason for me doing this. We must intimidate and humiliate the enemies of free speech, and not let them intimidate and humiliate us. Like I I completely agree. 
this is, by the way, the, 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 in the same, in, in a similar fashion to how we often talk about the desire of, uh, well, w- within the Islamic community, there are some who will battle uh, back at the ideology of Islamism. Forget about jihadism and terrorism, just Islamism. Too many people, it seems to me, uh, in some countries and at some times, allow there to be uh, more hardline talk than is healthy in a society, right? Islamism meaning political Islam. And we always say, look, it needs to be a conversation from within. Uh, Democrats in this country need to have a conversation from within on free speech because right now the progressive vanguard, the, 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 the tip of the... Uh, of the left-wing spear, so to speak, is anti-speech. This is not a, a, a this is not a phenomenon that is limited just to college campuses. They try this with speech codes on well on campus, of course, but also with the regulation of workplace speech and with trying to use uh, the transgender rights issue as a means of instituting laws about which pronouns even can be used. You know, I had to have the discussion recently with a friend of mine, and, and I, did, I was serious. I said, look, I'm all for, uh, I'm all for being a, a warrior for truth, but I also can't get fired because then I will just get it. You know, then I'm a warrior for nothing. Right? I'm on my spare time talking about stuff to people. I don't have, I don't have a platform. No one's going to hear me. So when it comes to the pronoun usage, um, outside the confines of my show, am I am I now obligated, under pain of lawsuit, to refer to someone, to an individual, let's say, as they? And if I refuse to say that a singular individual, because of a transgender, uh, a transgender, are we not allowed to say preference? We have to say identity now. Isn't that interesting? It is a preference, but a preference shows that it's just a state of mind, and a state of mind is not a profound enough. Uh, case, so they say instead that it's an it's identity. It's who you are. It's not how you think you are. That's what they. That's part of how they uh, take us along on this uh, progressive journey here, right? That's how the transformation of language happens and perception along with it. But if they want me to say they, and I don't say they, do I then open myself up to? Uh, harassment allegations? Am I now possibly, can I, could I be sued in the workplace for that? And I think the answer to this, if you if you were to ask the editorial board of the New York Times or even the, the Huffington Post or certainly the Nation or any of these places, uh, is yes. I, I, I think they believe that that would be now covered under, uh, that that's a form of discrimination. Now, legally, could I could I fight back against it based on what the law says right now? Maybe, but uh, sexual orientation is gender identity now part of the sexual orientation categorization. You can see how we are heading down. Uh, we're heading down a road here where it's not going to be a political discussion anymore. It's going to be a mandate. You're going to be forced to say things that you don't think are true, that you know to be factually untrue, but you will have to bow at the altar of political correctness or else. Uh, I I sit here and and I wonder aloud to you how, how long do we how long do we have left uh, the right to be offensive? If you can't be offensive, it should be noted you can't actually have a you can't have political debate because someone will always be defended by uh, offended by a real political discussion. 
So if you have a right not to be offended, then I no longer have a right, not you, but you know what I mean, I mean the general you, if one has a right not to be offended, I no longer have a right to express my point of view. If I no, have a, no longer have a right to express my point of view, then free speech is dead. If free speech is dead in this country, do we really have liberty? The answer is no. We have a much more tenuous grasp of our own freedoms in this country right now than I think a vast majority of the American people really are aware of in their day-to-day because it is happening slowly but consistently. They are eroding, and we aren't even noticing And it's happening in Australia, too. Welcome back, everybody. Let's step aside from the Comey partisan food fight today and talk a bit about what's going on in the world of national security outside our borders uh, to help us with that, we're joined by our friend Michael Pregent. He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He spent 28 years in the military and intelligence communities. He's a former paratrooper. Uh, great to have you, Mike. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Buck. All right, let's start with what's going on in and around Raqqa. Seems like we're in the final stages here of taking the Islamic State's de facto capital away from it. Yeah, so, so the Raqqa situation lines up like this. There's about 200,000 civilians in Raqqa and three to 4,000 ISIS fighters there. Uh, a 35,000-man force is, is approaching. The problem is that force, again, like Iraq, is not made up of Sunnis from Syria. It's, it's primarily led by the YPG, a Kurdish force that has shown on occasion to be opportunist and we're actually wondering, once they secure Raqqa, will they simply give it back to Assad? And that's a concern. Our focus is, is so heavily uh, weighted on taking territory away and not so much about keeping that territory from ISIS in the future. How is this fight going to go, by the way? It's taken a long time. We're going to talk about Mosul in a second. But where it seems the uh, the force that is anti-ISIS is much more established and capable uh, on the Iraqi side of the equation than it is right now on the Syrian side. But uh, isn't Raqqa probably better defended and with more ISIS fighters than even Mosul was? I mean, I I just want to get your sense of uh, what our expectations should be for the actual retaking of the Islamic State's capital. Well, in this case, and you're 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 exactly right. It's it's been fortified for a longer time. It's it's one of the one of the first places uh, that ISIS was able to control, and they've been able to conduct the majority of their planning operations out of that area. That being Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor. Uh, the issue here is what's different about Raqqa and Mosul. In Mosul, they told the population to stay in place. In Raqqa, they're telling the population to leave. So once again, a strategy where U.S. works with ground forces that are not from the area. We are, we are providing air support to a ground force that's telling the locals to leave, meaning we're exiting in a town. Um, in this case, I don't know if we're going to rubble it because we don't, we don't have the Iraqi military and Shia militias like, they, like they do in Iraq, uh, basically launching rockets and crude munitions towards the city. In this case, it's, it will be U.S. munitions. So that is a good thing. Um, the, the Raqqa offensive is interesting in that at the same time the U.S. is working with anti-ISIS forces in Raqqa, we're also having to deal with Iraqi Shia militias coming over from Iraq into Syria and pushing in our bases down south, our joint 
bases where we're training uh, anti-ISIS fighters, such as the area of Al-Tamf. And that's an issue. So in one case, you're working with Iraqi militias in Iraq to go into Sunni cities. In the other case, you're actually targeting them as they approach on a force you're training to fight ISIS. It's, 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 it's a really interesting dynamic. We're speaking to Michael Pregian. He's a former paratrooper and, uh, and military intelligence officer. Uh, Mike, I, I wanted to get into what's going on in Mosul now. That's been a campaign that's uh, been ongoing for months. It seems like we are in the final stages here. Uh, w- what comes next? And, and tell us about your concern about Shia militias for those listening. Well, here's if, if anybody looks at the strategy going back, or I, I would ask people to look at the strategy going back to 2014, uh, where we've cleared Fallujah, Ramadi, Tikrit, and other areas. Those areas, <clears throat> ISIS is still able to conduct attacks in those areas. The, the strategy has been based on replacing an ISIS flag with an Iraqi flag and calling it success. That never worked <laughs> when we were in Iraq uh, working with uh, the Iraqi military. You didn't simply clear an area once and have it remain that way. Al-Qaeda was always able to come back. So my concern is that as, as the, the Shia militias gain primacy through this operation, that they are going to call ISIS defeated in Iraq and start moving towards Syria, like they've said, and then ISIS will be able to conduct these high-profile attacks in Baghdad and other areas, forcing them to come back. So the, 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 back, the threat of, a once again, a, a sectarian civil war looms over everything that's going on in Iraq. Just can you give people some background? When they hear Shia militia, what does that mean? I mean, who controls them? What are they comprised of? Sure. Why do they matter in Iraq? Well, they matter because they're outside of the control of the government. They'll do what the government wants when they agree with the government. <laughs> They'll say no when they don't. They, they disagree with the government more often. Um, they are uh, basically funded by Iran's Quds Force, the IRGC. Their leaders wear Khomeini patches and Khomeini patches. They, they, they work for Qasem Soleimani. Now, I do want to caveat that with <clears> – <throat> excuse me – uh, with Sistani's call for action where 100,000 Shia volunteers wanted to fight ISIS and they rolled into what people call the popular mobilization units. There was no command and control framework for them to roll up under. under. So what they did is they rolled up under existing Iranian-controlled Shia militias. And those leaders are standing to do well in the 2018 elections. Those leaders are saying that they're going to Syria to not to fight ISIS, but to uh, keep Assad in power. So that means they'll be fighting U.S.-backed rebels. So so everyone, uh, so I think this is important, and everyone should keep this in mind, that one of the most capable ground forces in Iraq right now is a sectarian, or, or are sectarian Shia paramilitaries who are outside the direct control of the government in Baghdad, take orders from Iran, and feel like they can just uh, head across the border to Syria to help out the Assad regime if they so choose. If they're so directed, actually, <laughs> by right. Soleimani. And in some cases, exactly, if they so choose. <clears throat> actually, the most capable Shia militia in Iraq are the Shia militias wearing the uniform of the Iraqi security forces working with us. And that is something we don't talk about. The Shia militias aren't simply in the Hashr al-Shabi or the popular mobilization units. They're actually in the Ministry of Interior, in the Federal Police, in the Rapid Response Units, the Emergency Response Units. And the Iraqi military has become a 
95% Shia force. Are they all sectarian? No. But are their leaders in key positions sectarian? Absolutely. The Sunnis are paying attention. The Kurds are paying attention. And even though we ignore that, it can't, it can't, it can't change that dynamic. Michael Pregian is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, 28 years in the military and intel communities. He's a former paratrooper. Check him out on Twitter at MP Pregent. Sir, Michael, great to have you. Hey, thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Team, uh, we are going to be hitting a quick break here. Uh, stay with me. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK on those lines. And also, if you haven't already, please do uh, take a moment to check out BuckSexton.com. And you can send me your thoughts on Facebook.com slash BuckSexton. We will be right back. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Now, before we kick off today, we are going to pause just for a moment to remember the two young Australian women who so tragically lost their lives in the recent terror attacks in London. The tragic events that took place in London last Saturday night. We stop to remember all the lives lost, all those families and friends affected by this terrible tragedy, and in particular, we reflect on the loss of two young Australian women living and working in London. That was earlier today at a soccer match between the national team of Saudi Arabia and the national team of Australia. And there was, as you heard, a moment of silence called for before the game uh, in remembrance of the victims of the horrific terrorist attack in London, uh, which included two young Australian women. Um, this attack is still, I mean, the, the psychological wounds are, are still fresh in everyone's minds that were there. And certainly all of us around the world are still in a state of horror and shock whenever we think about this, and it has crossed my mind many times since that initial uh, 48 hours of, of news coverage. Uh, and the Saudi team snubbed this moment of silence, just decided that they weren't going to do it. And they have to understand the way that looks, right? They said before the game, this was not an accident, there was nothing lost in translation here, they decided they would not honor that moment of silence, so they kept on walking around, stretching, doing whatever they were doing. Uh, some of them were, were seated, while the rest of the stadium uh, was standing silent, and the Australian team was all standing together in silence and uh, paying their respects. What are the Saudis thinking here? Uh, the, the Saudis, by the way, it should note, offered up that this was not a part of their culture. And that's how they were uh, defending this. They were saying this is not a part of their culture, and so they just won't do it. And I'm left to sit and say to myself, hold on a minute, uh, isn't respect for the, the recently deceased, in this case the recently murdered, this is cross-cultural, isn't it? A moment of silence is something that we can all, no matter what part of the world we're in, no matter who we are, we could all respect just to just to have have a moment. And let me, you know, this isn't asking anyone to bend the knee or say a prayer or anything like that. It's just, can we just pay respect for a second? 
and and is there isn't this not one of the most basic uh, forms of uh, human respect that we know of? Right, respect for the dead. This sh- this shouldn't be controversial. Why would the Saudis refuse to just stand in silence for literally a, a minute a, or a moment, a moment of silence? Nope, not going to do it. Said they weren't going to. Not not a part of their culture. Oh, isn't that interesting? You know, I am often. Uh, reminded in these circumstances of a story that was told to me by a friend who was in Cairo when the movie The Kingdom came out. And in that movie The Kingdom, uh, there is a scene. It takes place in Saudi Arabia. Um, And in the beginning of the movie, there are Americans who are at an oil compound, just civilians, people who are trying to earn a living, working as expats in Saudi Arabia. And there's a terrible terrorist attack where they're driving around and there's a there's a softball game of just of Americans who are working in Saudi Arabia and they're being shot up by uh, jihadist Saudi terrorists with machine guns and or, you know with AK-47s and and there's explosives and the whole th- I mean, it's just ter- it's a terrible I mean it's a terrifying scene and my friend said that when he was in Egypt and that scene came on and you have people men women and children are being mowed down at the beginning of a movie he said the entire theater stood up and clapped and were cheering as Americans were being shot down left and right. Now, I know it's a movie, and I know that the defenders of all things the Islamic world would say that this is an anecdote. I wasn't there, and, you know, it, this is a friend that I know and, know and trust, and there's no reason for him to have lied to me about this. Um this, to me, was not some tiny minor incident. I think it was a window into a much broader mindset. And I think that there is, uh, more commonly in the Muslim world than anybody wants to speak about in the West, uh, there is an underlying disdain and hatred uh, for non-Muslims. I, I think that that's I'm not saying everybody, but, you know, wh- why is it that in America we can always be told about how, well, one political party is Islamophobic and, and hates Muslims and is so Islamophobic? And that's a constant discussion. But we never allowed to discuss, you know, is there is there not is there prejudice from Muslims against non-Muslims? Is is that a is that a widespread sentiment? That doesn't mean that all Muslims I'm not casting aspersions on everybody within the faith, but. If it's a problem in our own society, which is much more tolerant and much more liberal and much more moral than any of these Muslim countries out there, that many Americans, if you believe the left, have a problem with Muslims just because, why is it such a leap to think that there are probably a lot of Muslims out there who have a problem with particularly non-Muslim Western Christians and Jews? Is Is that a leap? Now... Maybe the Saudi lack of respect has nothing to do with that. But I do keep an eye out for these indicators, and I'm not as quick to sweep it all aside and pretend that there's nothing to this as a lot of other folks are. Uh, I, I do think that this is one of the discussions that should be had in our time that never is allowed to be had, and that is prejudice of the Islamic community against non-Muslims. Do we ever get to talk about this? Is is this uh, a topic we're allowed to broach or no? Everyone just runs away all of a sudden. Because what happened at this soccer game 
just I'm sorry, it just doesn't smell right. They could have they could have done this. Maybe they were worried about what people back in Saudi would think. What does that say? I'm going to take a quick break here, team. Uh, we'll be back, and we're going to switch up and take a, a lighter topic. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Remember when we were discussing yesterday that uh, unfortunate situation that played out in Philadelphia on the street with a reporter who said terrible things to a police officer, was on video cursing, acting like a maniac, tried to spit on somebody on video, and kept saying that everyone hates the cops, which, uh, one, is not true, actually, in America. We, we really like our police. Uh, and, and two, uh, usually just for the purposes of uh, not being a moron, you, you don't want to be screaming in a cop's face how much everyone hates cops. That's a bad idea. Uh, That woman was fired, and now she's, as I understand it, more or less in some form of uh, hiding because of all the threats she's getting. Um, But the the lesson we took from that, and it's one that's repeated over and over, is when we live in this era of uh, constant possible surveillance, you got to watch what you say and do in public. And sure enough, in Brussels, we got a guy who I believe is videotaping it himself videotaping the encounter, thinking that he's in the right. Well, let me give you a little bit of what went on here. So he he was, uh, I don't know, Ryanair has a policy where you have to print out the boarding pass and bring it to the gate, and if you don't, you have to buy a new ticket. Ticket's like 50 bucks. So, yeah, it's it's annoying, and that's that's money, but it's it's not the end of the world. It's not like when you... You know, you think that your, your flight is canceled or you miss a flight and a new flight is going to cost you $1,000 the same day. But nonetheless, uh, this guy thinks that he shouldn't have to deal with this. Ryanair is a, a, a cheap uh, European airline. It's like very, very cheap flights is their whole thing. So he goes up to this airline worker and this is how he addresses her. How are you, Sabrina? Hmm? What kind of customer service do you think you're providing for Ryanair right now? Right? You tell me to wait, then you tell me I have to pay 50 euros for a flight that I'm already checked in on. Absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. Now, this guy continues to harass this airport worker for quite some time. Uh, and he's, he's videotaping it, and he just keeps on, and she's trying to ignore him, and, and he won't stop. And he's saying, you know, you're in customer service, I'm a customer, you have to deal with me. But he's being really belligerent and aggressive. And sure enough, um, a bystander, and by the way, the by, whenever the bystander gets involved, you know that it's uh, going to get ugly real fast. Uh, a bystander in the situation, by the way, this is all in the New York Post is where I saw this, this clip. Uh, the bystander decides to get involved, and here's how that goes. No, you were harassing her. How am I you harassing her? I'm a customer. No, I'm you're a not customer. a customer. You're harassing her. Oh, I'm not a customer. Her. She's trying I'm to not, get Mind your own business, Baldy. Mind your own business. Go sit down, old man. Sit down, old man. Go sit down, old man. I live here. I live here. I don't care. I live here. Okay. So what? What's your right to talk to me? You're disturbing everybody. Everybody. I'm a customer here, man. I'm trying to get on my flight. Okay. So have some courtesy. Let us go to the flight. Tell her to let me on the flight. Just. So yeah, not exactly, not exactly de-escalating. Uh, the situation. Um, this guy, I don't think he's been, I didn't see him anywhere in here uh, being identified. Um, so uh, this is what, I'm looking at this piece and it, it seems like 
you know, th- there's no way that this guy is such a bully and he's being so mean. Um, it, it seems like people are, I don't know. It, it's just like, are, are we getting more uh, uh, demanding and, and are our manners just all out the window these days? Um, you know, I, I, so this video, this guy, I don't know much about. It doesn't seem like it's identified him. I don't know who this guy is. But he's really mean to this woman. And now, of course, one of these clips is going around. Interesting that he was videotaping it himself from, from what I could tell in the video. Uh, you know, I had a, a situation recently where I, I went to uh, I went to a, a meal at a restaurant in New York City uh, that I and it's owned by a restaurateur that I have been, you know, I've been to many of his places over all the years. And I rarely do this, but the the, uh, the fire alarm went off in the middle of the meal. So for about five minutes, we had the shrieking alarm and also the strobe lights going off. And the restaurant was very expensive. I was meeting a friend there. We were going to talk about, uh, well, mostly business, actually. And the uh, the alarm's going off. And the, the, the server staff, and, I, and I'm sympathetic for this, the server staff, um, made the decision to just act like there wasn't an actual fire alarm. I mean, it's clearly a, a false alarm, but that the strobe lights and the, instead of coming over and saying we're dealing with it, everybody, they just were like, can I get you some more coffee? Um, which is fine, but it was a, a little un, unsettling, I think, given what was going on. Uh, so because I have known this restaurant group for a long time as a, as a native New Yorker and because I usually think that they do such a great job, I and I never do this. So I just, this is the first I can tell you this is the first time I don't write Yelp reviews. Uh, I don't you know, if I do content, I like to be paid for it. So uh, I, I don't uh, do Yelp reviews. I don't do all that kind of stuff. Um, but this is the first time I think I can ever remember having written a restaurant just to say, you guys, you're over, you know, for what you're serving, you're overpriced. Your menu needs a ton of work, and the dishes you served were unacceptable. And I, but I, I went through it in a calm, polite, reasoned fashion. I, and by the way, this is a very famous the restaurateur who owns it. It was a very famous restaurateur. Uh, now I didn't go to him directly. I went to the management of the specific restaurant where I had the issue. But I was polite. I said I'm, I'm a longtime fan of uh, what this restaurant group stands for and what you guys have been doing. And I just would like to see uh, some of these issues addressed. And I, and I was very disappointed. And, and it is a shame because this is a place I would like to go to again in the future. Right. One thing I've learned is whenever you come at a, one of these problems w- of customer service, which is really what we're talking about, and you come at it from a uh, I'm trying to be helpful and I'm ultimately on your team uh, service provider perspective, if there's any prayer of you getting a good response from them, then it might actually happen, right? I mean, sometimes it doesn't matter what you do. Sometimes a chef will say, you know, blank you and the, you know, and get out of here. You know, they don't care. But in this case, I, I wrote them this uh, this email over the weekend, and I, I was surprised. Yesterday, I received phone calls. Uh, they asked if they could contact me, and I figured that that was pro forma. That I received phone calls, and uh, the based on my email, which I will say was was well written. Uh, I had the uh, the managing director of the or the uh, yeah well I guess the the managing director of the restaurant group uh, or of the restaurant itself I forget now but the executive chef of a celebrated restaurant in New York City yesterday got on the phone with me to discuss the menu a little bit you know wanted to understand wanted to talk about my concerns and now 
do I think that this very, uh, very famous... By the way, if they were jerks, I would be naming the restaurant. But they were very respectful, and they were, uh, they were incredibly professional. And uh, all in all, I think it was, a, it was a positive exchange and a positive response. Do I think that the executive chef who probably trained in culinary school for many, for, you know, well, not many years, but for a few years, and then apprenticed for many years as a chef to become the executive chef of a, of a famous uh, flagship restaurant group uh, establishment. Um, do I think that he really cares that I disagree with some of his menu offerings, that I think that a, a fried chicken liver sandwich as a main menu item is probably a bit too much of a uh, there's too much of a small market for that no I, I don't think that he cares what I had to say about that that I said that as a celiac the restaurant was uh, the menu was particularly daunting and not very accommodating maybe they'll take some semblance of that into account but I'm sure you've all had this experience too right where you're in a place and you know you know everyone's trying and you don't want to be a, you don't want to be mean you don't want to be a jerk but you also have you're paying for something and you have a certain level of expectation and if you treat everyone with, with respect, you expect to be treated with respect in return. And you could have a civil and even constructive dialogue with people who are otherwise strangers but are providing you with some kind of a service. Uh, I just have to laugh and think, you know, part of this is that I know that when I write that email, I am representing myself and I can't, you know, that, that I, I can't go off on some crazy tangent and say really rude and inappropriate things to them and everything else. Um, but I, I think now it's, it, we should all be in that mode where we uh, have a sense that every interaction uh, we have, if it's not recorded, uh, we're probably best off to act like it is. Meaning, you know, wh whether we're arguing with, and look, I, I at some level sympathize with the guy arguing at the ticket counter because, who hasn't been incredibly frustrated before when dealing with, you know, service with an airline? I mean, I've I, I have almost lost it, and I'm a pretty patient guy dealing with airlines. But he he was being he was being abrasive and and he was being intentionally aggressive, and uh, and really honestly a little bit threatening to that woman. And there's just never an excuse for that. Um, and you know, I, I just think that it's interesting to see that exchange, and then I, I think about my very polite but firm email about what I thought were deficiencies at an incredibly famous and well-established restaurant here in New York City. And in response, I got the executive chef, perfectly cordial. We had a nice discussion. I'm just some stranger who went to his restaurant. He's on the phone with me talking about it. And it also reminded me of how I view my interactions with, uh, with Team Buck. I, always, I love it when people write me you know, with ideas or in, you know, in good faith. They're like, I need more of this or less of this on the show. And I, I read all of it as it comes in, especially on Facebook. I can't always respond because I, there are hundreds and hundreds, I mean, now thousands and thousands of messages over time. Uh, and it just it takes to, to, to give a, a full response that doesn't seem curt would be quite an endeavor. It would be a job unto itself. But whenever I can, I respond. And I, I'm, always, I'm always humbled that people uh, who listen to the show are uh, surprised that their, their thoughts on the show matters to me as much as it does, because it really does. Uh, so in a sense, while I sit here thinking, why would this executive chef call me? Uh, then I thought more about it, and I, I said, well, I mean, I've written paragraphs, and some of you listening have received them back to people about why I said this on the show or my sense about where we can go with these kinds of segments or a topic that I want to hit. And uh, Because I, I am, in a sense, also in, in a 
in a service business. You could say it's entertainment, it's information, it's news, but I serve the audience. Uh, and so just like that executive chef from unnamed super fancy, uh, well, I shouldn't say super, well, no, it's pretty fancy, but super well-known restaurant in New York City. Uh, anyone who engages with me from Team Buck uh, in good faith and, and w in respect uh, gets the same in return. And, you know, their opinion is just as valid as mine. So I always want to hear it. Um, so those are my thoughts on on all that stuff. Uh, we're going to switch it up. Oh, I've got an update on Evergreen College for you. It's going to be good. Stay with me. Between debate and dialectic. But debate, wait a second. No, it is. Debate means you are trying to win. Dialectic means you are using disagreement to discover what is true. I am not interested in debate. I am interested only in dialectic, which does mean I listen to you and you listen to me. You don't have to email. We don't care what you want to speak on. This is not about you. I'm talking about all about him. On terms of white privilege. This is not a discussion. You have lost that one. Ah, uh, yes. Evergreen State College in in Washington. Uh, that was Professor Weinstein, who has become uh, well-known in recent weeks because, as you recall, Evergreen State College had this mandated day of absence for white students, meaning that instead of black students choosing to have a day of absence where they would not uh, exercise their own will and not go to school that day. The demand was that white students and white faculty not show up for a day because of white privilege or, or, or something. And Professor Weinstein pointed out that that's just, uh, one, insane, and two, counterproductive. And this led to all kinds of uh, madness on this campus, including, by the way, a quarter of the faculty of this state-funded institution, mind you, who turned against the professor, uh, who weren't on his side with all of this. And he was backed into a corner there. That audio I just played for you was Professor Weinstein surrounded by students who curse at him, who tell him to be quiet, who tell him that his white privilege means that he's not allowed to say anything at all, that he has no... Uh, he has... No point to be made. And it's fascinating because he tries to address them as college students and discuss the difference between debate and dialectic. And I, and I just had to laugh. I'm like, you're going to try to win these win these uh, angry little tyrants over with with dialectic. You, you think you're going to get you're going to get fancy with the philosophy here. And that somehow will be the answer. He was he was mistaken in that assumption. Uh, but Professor Weinstein, who's written in The Wall Street Journal now, uh, about this whole ordeal that has included students wandering the campus with bats, uh, destroying property, threats of violence. One student, it's been reported, was attacked because he was uh, he opposed this. He was somebody who was openly against this day of absence and just all of this insanity that's been going on on this campus. Um, but and I, I credit Heat Street here uh, and the Daily Caller with staying on this story and following it because it is just amazing. When you look at the course catalog for Evergreen State College, all of a sudden, everything makes perfect sense. When you look into what the offerings are here, for example, and you see that um, instead of biology classes that deal with 
biology, right? The science of life, biology. <laughs> uh, they they have reproduction, gender, race, and power as an offering in the syllabus. Uh, they also offer dancing molecules, which I have to tell you sounds kind of awesome to me. Like do loot loot, I'm a dancing molecule. Um, I'm sorry, it's dancing molecules, dancing bodies. That's very important. Uh, and they use the art of dance with one's body to communicate uh, and to understand the chemical processes that are going on within the body. I, I can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is, I wish I could make it up because it's brilliant and hilarious and so, uh, so completely bonkers. Um, by the way, students at Evergreen State College do not get grades. That might tell you something about what the work ethic and how serious an academic institution this really is. Uh, they don't get grades. They get narrative evaluations that allow them to have some feedback. Uh, th this reminds me of Hampshire College, which was down the road, also known as Hampshire College. Hey, man, what's up? Who wants to come to our Halloween party? Oh, what's up? I actually went to uh, the Hampshire, a.k.a. Hampshire College, Halloween party back in, oh, I don't know, the early 2000s. And uh, I had never been around so many people that were so clearly not just on drugs, but on on large amounts of drugs. And uh, I, I don't know what they were taking, but it, it wasn't just weed. Uh, there were some people walking around in some pretty crazy costumes. Um, someone told me one year that there was a guy whose costume was just naked man, which I suppose is is a is a costume if you really lean into it. Um, but anyway, Hampshire was a place that was similar to uh, similar to others in that it was or similar to Evergreen and that you don't get grades there. And you always knew who the Hampshire students were in class because they could take class at Amherst College. They would they would be the ones who would raise their hands and ask incredibly complicated, very stupid questions like, Excuse me, Professor, but like, given the complexities of post post dialectical deconstructionist, postmodernist, post feminist neocolonialism, I mean, are we gonna have to write papers for this class, man? Or like, like what? Like, is it like? I mean, I just want to like show up and like play music. You know what I mean? Uh, and you're like, oh, it was the Hampshire kid. And I know that right now that I'm sure that if there are Hampshire people listening, they would yell at me and they'd point out that you know Hampshire has produced brilliant scholars actually I don't know if they would be able to do that but they probably would say that um, but so Evergreen's not alone here and it's just a worse example of this I think or a more extreme example than what you've seen in other places and it's been around for a while but the active and aggressive silencing of speech is what has changed now it's not just that people will say mean things to you if you try to speak it is in fact that people will um shut you down, shout you down, and even threaten to hurt you and maybe even hurt you if you say things they don't like. And they think they're courageous and righteous in doing so, which is obviously very distressing. Uh, but, back, but, but the catalog here, the course catalog, tells you everything you need to know because college should be a time when people are pursuing true intellectual uh, enlightenment, right? You should have to learn things, study you're supposed to be expanding your mind. By the way, expand your mind, man. I've got an idea of how people can expand their mind. Um, no, the, the, the way 
to to do this, of course, is to have some rigor in the disciplines that everyone has to uh, engage in on the campus, right? But that's not the way that it plays. That's not the way that it plays out. And the course catalog tells you much of the tale here, I think. I told you about Dancing Molecules, uh, Dancing Bodies, which just sounds like oh so much fun. You could also take a, a class uh, called <laughs> Actions and Their Consequences, which will, quote, examine local, national, and international policy issues of the post-colonial and neo-colonial world in education, healthcare, social welfare, and environmentalism through a series of interdisciplinary lectures. By the way, interdisciplinary is, is just a, an academic's way of uh, sometimes, in, in this context, interdisciplinary often just means uh, I want to throw in a fancy word here and have an excuse to have other professors come in and, and guest lecture or borrow their materials so I have to do less. Um, interdisciplinary, man. It's like, oh, it's like music and like glass blowing and like everything like comes together. It's amazing. Uh, so if math and economics are what you're looking for, Heat Street here says that there are some social justice tinged options, including advocating for sustainable culture, which is considered a math course, by the way. It's, it's an advocacy course about sustainable culture. I don't even know what, I don't even know what sustainable culture is. Usually sustainable refers to food and sustainable farming, um, but I don't know, sustainable culture. And then there's also dimensions for inequality and options for change. And uh, in case you think that you're going to have to uh, go into some you know, more hard science, don't worry about that. You have, under the physics uh, heading here, Defending Mother Earth, Science, Energy, and, natives pe and Native Peoples. Uh, so they've got some incredible stuff. Look, I I'm not going to lie. Amherst, which is a at least a, a difficult place um, to get into. I mean, not the hardest by any stretch, but it's, you know, it's, uh, I think they take one in, it's a, like a 20%, 17% admission rate, something like that. Uh, they had a class that I took called Economic Anthropology, which I just remember the professor would tell us about her trips to Africa and about uh, native medicinal practices and there was not much else. It, it, it was it was what we called a gut class. Uh, it was not really worth time, but it was once a week for two hours. And there were some uh, ladies that I liked who were going to be taking it as well. So I figured, you know what? I'll give this economic anthropology thing a shot. Uh, but that was certainly not the entirety of, of my academic uh, career there. And, and that would be a bad thing to just take one nonsense class after another but that's what's going on at evergreen state if you if you see the course catalog at these crazy progressive institutions you understand what's what's uh, going to come after that i mean it, it sets the stage it, it provides the necessary context it gives you a sense of really what you're going to be in for so that's why i found that this uh, this course catalog was so uh made for such delicious reading by the way I mean, they have they have a class here. I'm even going through it on the fly. I, I picked some out that Heat Street uh, had noted, but you've got uh, wilderness first responder. Um, I don't know if I don't know if that's actual professional, like to how to be a, a park ranger. Uh, they also have wait what how things really work in science and business. Um, 
Thinking in Indian, Democracy, Civic Engagement, and Resistance, uh, Social Entrepreneurs, The Unsung Heroes of Community Building. That might be moderately interesting, but you're getting the idea here, right? So, But when, when these are the offerings, when these are the classes that you can take at a place, and a lot of students take them, it's not surprising at all that the progressive indoctrination would just become so overwhelming that there was no longer any real connection to reality for some of these students. Uh, and that a progressive left-wing Bernie Sanders-supporting professor could find himself on the wrong side of the outrage mob here is, uh, is telling. And it's not the first time, right? We, we, we continue to follow these. Uh, because it's clearly an epidemic across the country, whether we're talking about the Berkeley free speech, uh, anti-speech riots, or the attack on Charles Murray at Middlebury. And, you know, th this is a trend. Right? This is a, a much more uh, broad-based problem than many on the left want to admit. Some are coming out and finally admitting it. Uh, but there are others who just have no interest at all. And uh, they try to say that this is just an aberrant. This is uh, out of nowhere. But anyway, Evergreen State College, the, the catalog is hilarious and definitely worth uh, checking out. Um, team, I'm going to hit a quick break here. Uh, also, please do check out uh, BuckSexton.com whenever you get a chance. We're posting stories there throughout the day. And also follow me on Twitter. I was live tweeting much of the Comey hearing today. If you're on Twitter, I try to do a good job to keep it uh, engaging. Uh, we'll be right back. Did you really think we want those laws observed, said Dr. Ferris? We want them to be broken. You'd better get it straight that it's not a bunch of Boy Scouts you're up against. We're after power and we mean it. There's no way to rule innocent men. The only power any government has is the power to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough criminals, one makes them. One declares so many things to be a crime that it becomes impossible for men to live without breaking laws. Who wants a nation of law-abiding citizens? What's there in that for anyone? But just pass the kind of laws that can neither be observed nor enforced or objectively interpreted, and you create a nation of lawbreakers. And then you cash in on guilt. Now that's the system, Mr. Reardon. That's the game. And once you understand it, you'll be much easier to deal with. That's from uh, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And it's one of the Randy, uh, Randian insights that has always stuck most in my mind. Uh, the notion that the government can exercise much greater control over people by expanding what is considered criminal activity to include areas that, one, are not particularly criminal. This is what we would call from a legal perspective malum prohibitum as opposed to malum in se. Malum in se is don't kill people. Malum prohibitum is make sure you retain records of all your financial transactions for seven years or else when we do an audit and you do not produce them, we will brand you a criminal for failure to provide documentation or whatever. That's malum prohibitum. Right? Malum prohibitum is, you know, this is the amount of uh, this fish that you can import into the United States. And if you exceed that, you have committed a federal criminal offense, right? That's malum prohibitum, meaning the government just says no, therefore it's no. Uh, we now live in a society of endless 
and often inexplicable laws. And you see this playing out now with the testimony from James Comey and the back and forth over whether it's the Hillary email investigation, Donald Trump-Russia collusion. Uh, We see that there are so many different statutes that it just turns into a political game. People want to see their ideological opponents locked up in this country. And I'm really troubled by that. There are people that break the law and should be punished for it, to be sure, politicians and non-politicians, and that's a statement of the obvious. But I don't want to see somebody uh, who is pro-Obamacare thrown in prison because they like Obamacare. I don't want to see somebody who's for open borders thrown in prison because they're open borders. But we see climate change people believe that deniers should be imprisoned. And increasingly, if you are even willing to be fair to Trump, never mind to defend Trump, uh, I do believe that there are many on the left, that the the left is out to satiate a political bloodlust here, and they want people thrown in prison. They want to see lives ruined. They think that justice for the stolen election from Hillary means that otherwise good and decent uh, men and perhaps women, we'll see who gets prosecuted, Uh, are taken from their families, are humiliated, are incarcerated, under put under constant threat of violence from being in a federal penitentiary. Uh, For crimes? They're not even sure what the crime is. The Logan Act, obstruction of justice, they, they, they can't figure it out. They're just looking for a crime because they want to ruin people's lives because they have become infected with a totalitarian mindset that there cannot be any opposition and there cannot be good faith between Americans who disagree on matters of public debate. It's very distressing. You know, I I do not celebrate people getting sent away to prison uh, for any of these process crimes ever, you know, whether it's in the midst of lying to the FBI or uh, anytime these political uh, fights play out with somebody going to, to prison who didn't do anything really wrong but who got caught up in the machinery, it's a miscarriage of justice. Uh, and I, I'm worried that that's where we're heading now and a lot of Democrats are pushing for it. So always remember that Ayn Rand quote. They like to make everyone into criminals because they can control criminals easily. Team, always a pleasure and an honor to have you with me today. We're going to talk about a lot of non Trump, Comey, Russia stuff tomorrow. I promise you that. Until tomorrow, my friends, as always, no matter what, I tell you, shield time.